Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Gender ideology and transgenderism have exploded in our culture, and they pose profound challenges to Catholics and to Catholic institutions, particularly Catholic healthcare institutions. In light of this, the NCBC has published a new book titled Transgender Issues in Catholic Healthcare. It is available on our online store. You can go to ncbcenter.org and then click on Shop. Joining me today to talk about the book is NCBC President Joseph Meany and Director of Publications Ted Ferdin. Joseph and Ted, welcome back to Bioethics on Air. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. <clears throat> Great to have you both with us today. All right. So first question, uh, I want to start out with Joseph. Joseph, why did the NCBC publish transgender issues in Catholic healthcare? I think the short answer is that this is such an important topic. It's uh, something that is really uh, a major discussion point in our society today and and something that is new and uh, has a very strong bioethical component, and therefore uh, the NCBC is, is one of the premier institutions to comment on, on these topics. Ted. Yeah, well, and it's also um, an area which uh, the church generally has not given a lot of guidance to. Pope Francis has been uh, very uh, consistent and solid on the issue, but uh, it is a new issue. And of course, there's always theologians within the Catholic tradition who are exploring like the cutting edge theologians who are trying to find out, um, you know, where the limits are. And so adding our voice, uh, which is, as Joseph was saying, soundly connected to the Catholic tradition is important, I think, for the mix of what's going to be out there and, and will help guide people. All right. Ted, who or what is the intended audience of this new book? Well, the main uh, audience are going to be Catholic healthcare workers, administrators, and patients to a certain degree. But you know, we have a very large uh, Catholic healthcare system in the United States. It's really unique uh, around the world uh, how much influence we have uh, on the healthcare scene. So we want to uh, make sure that uh, we are preserving our Catholic identity in our Catholic institutions. It's very easy to go with the secular flow and just accept whatever the secular world is offering to the Catholic healthcare system, which is a subset of a larger system. So in order to maintain our bearings and not take the easy way on these, these matters, uh, we're offering this book as a way of resisting some of the worst aspects of this particular, I'm going to call it an ideological movement. Mm -hmm. Joseph, your comments on the uh, intended audience. Yeah, I, I would just add that um, it, it is a, an area of, of general interest. So I think there are many individuals that will want to hear what the NCBC has to say about these topics and, and to have a more in-depth analysis of, you know, the issue of transgenderism and, um, you know, how it affects healthcare, but also the book goes further than that, you know, looking at school policies and, and other aspects. Good. All right. So, Ted, you are the director of publications here at the NCBC, so I think you're probably the, the best person to ask uh, to give us a little bit of history about the book. So, what 
prompted you to to publish this book and and how long has it been in the works? Well, I think it wasn't really my decision so much as a decision of Joseph and all the ethicists that we we really needed to get something out on this topic. We had put out a brief statement on transgenderism and in fact that's in this book. It's printed at the is the last chapter in uh, uh, transgender issues in Catholic healthcare. Uh, so it was a joint effort, and it took longer than we expected to get the book out. But um, it's uh, again, it's hopes, hopefully, be helpful to the public. Where do the materials or where do the chapters come from? Well, some of the chapters previously appeared in other venues, either in Ethics and Medics, our monthly newsletter, or in the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly, which is our quarterly journal. Uh, some of them are completely original, and anything that was reworked for this volume has been completely updated, and uh, you know has all the latest data in it. So it's it's all been reworked. It's in a sense it's all completely new because most of what's in there has been revised so significantly that uh, it has only a faint resemblance in many cases to the originals. Yeah. I'm wondering because this I've I've run across this when I've written things, particularly book long projects. You you start a book thinking one thing, and it, it always tends to morph into something else. So, with that in mind, I was wondering: Did your vision of the book and what you wanted to accomplish through it change at all as the pro as the project moved forward? Well, it, it changed some, but um, I, I don't think it changed that much. The main way in which it changed is that it became smaller and more focused. Hmm, interesting. Uh, there's a tendency, you know, for anyone who is contributing to a volume, a volume like this to feel that he or she needs to explain everything related to the topic before getting into the particular issue that I guess you call it that their assignment for that particular book. Uh, so, and I do want to thank uh, Phil Cerrone, the managing editor here at uh, the NCBC in publications, uh, for really insisting on this. Uh, there, for example, the book starts with an excellent introduction to the scientific and medical aspects by Paul Cruz, a physician. And many people you know, wanted, felt that they had to put in material about the scientific and medical aspects, but it really wasn't necessary. So it's part of the hard work of editing is telling authors, uh, you, you think this is very important, and it is very important, but it's already been said elsewhere, we need to take it out. That was the biggest uh, challenge for this volume. Yeah, I can, I, I can uh, having contributed a couple chapters to that, it, it, it was interesting because, you know, myself as an author, I didn't have the big view. And you know you and Phil did, so it, it did. It, it made it interesting, but I, I, it's a great volume. Joseph, want to move back uh, to you and and you know speaking as the president of the NCBC, this new book, Transgender Issues in Catholic Healthcare, I think is um, it, it's probably going to generate a bit of controversy. So, from your perspective, you came on board as the NCBC president back in 2019. What? initial concerns, if any, did you have about this uh, proposed book when you came on board? I mean, my initial thought was that I wanted to make sure that we would speak the truth in love, that we would you know, not shy away from, from hard facts and, and hard truths. And at the same time, you know, that we would 
very much display the the compassion and and love that characterizes the Catholic position on on any issue. And so uh, I was I was very happy to see that this is the way that uh, the book was conceived. You know, very very good scientific basis to everything, and and not polemical, but rather uh, having a very very even-minded, fair-minded view of, of the issues and try to be, you know, covering them as well and as charitably as possible. And I assume that these are still your thoughts today now that the book is completed? Yeah. So I obviously had to read through it uh, before we published it. And, and I was very impressed with the, with the way our authors dealt with, uh, with a very difficult topic. Good. Do you expect the book to receive any how shall we say, uh, resistance from either secular medicine or even from Catholic healthcare? I mean, I think that there are some individuals who have taken an ideological position, you know, in favor of uh, transgender that uh, will not be happy with this book because of its contents. Uh, I think that's unavoidable, but I also think it's good, right, that we can engage uh, in discussion with individuals. And, and there is room for discussion, in the sense that uh, you know there's constantly new facts, scientific facts that are coming to light, and and there are probably uh, constructive ways in which uh, we can deal charitably with uh, with these issues. But I think also that some some facts are simply facts and are there, and uh, the Catholic Church does not believe that one can change one's sex. That's that's simply not something that uh, that fits with our anthropology, our Christian anthropology, even. I would say Judeo-Christian ones. So I, I think there will be resistance, but I think at the same time, uh, fair-minded people will say this is this is a real contribution to the discussion. Ted, your comments, anything on the possible resistance that this book may receive? Well, Joseph used a good word when he said ideological, and I would define that as prejudging a case before knowing all the facts. And unfortunately, that is what has happened uh, in large part in the transgender issue. There's, there's very little science to back up what is being proposed, and yet it is assumed that this is true. And anyone who disagrees with it is somehow a bad person and trying to hurt people or snuff out debate or well, not snuff out debate. There's no debate necessary, according to the, the, those who are taking an ideological stance. So ideological stances are always dangerous because they get ahead of the facts. And uh, as we've seen, you know, speaking as a, as a publisher, uh, there is censorship rising again within our society. This is quite unusual for the American culture to see this happen. So I do have concerns about whether the book will be censored, you know, what can we advertise it on Amazon? We have we have a store there, but we also have our own web store where it can be, be purchased. Obviously, nothing's going to happen at our website, hopefully, <laughs> but there is the concern of, of whether it will be um, suppressed in some way. Right. All right, let's move into uh, talking about the contents of the book itself. So chapters are written by both NCBC and non-NCBC authors. And let's let's talk about the, the contributions from non-NCBC authors first. So the first chapter is titled Medical Approaches to Alleviating Gender Dysphoria by the already mentioned uh, Dr. Paul Ruse. Ted, I was wondering, can you tell us who is 
Paul Hrus, and what important information does his chapter convey to us? He is working at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, and his title is a fairly wide-ranging one. He's Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Cellular Biology, and Physiology. So he has he wears a number of hats there. Uh, this is the, the, the basic scientific exposition uh, of the transgender, mm, I guess, how, how do I put this, uh, Joe? The affirmative, uh, the affirmative model of care. Yeah, the affirmative model of care is the centerpiece that he looks at, but he, he looks at many other aspects of this. For example, he talks about comorbidities among the population that claims to have uh, gender dysphoria, uh, he looks at the social stress hypothesis, whether people become uh, inclined towards thinking that they're in the wrong, wrongly sexed body because of social stressors. He looks at whether society is contributing to the stress that people who have this uh, condition uh, suffer. Uh, he looks at the scientific basis. There's really, as he points out, there's no known cause of gender dysphoria, uh, which is problematic for offering therapeutic solutions, especially when they're as radical as they are proposed by the uh, more ideological aspects of it. Well, those dominate uh, the culture in any case. So he talks, uh, there's no objective biological basis that they can find. He talks about possible neurological bases, uh, genetic bases. All these are unknowns. Uh, we don't really know what, what, what causes it. So that's very interesting in the book as well. The affirmative care model is um, a big uh, part of this chapter as well. Um, so many different factors all connected to the scientific aspect. And he really evaluates it well. You know, he, he goes through and points out what we know and what we don't know in terms of what is empirically available through science. And as he points out, it's actually very limited. We don't know much. So the challenge uh, for the defenders of this is how can we make these kind of bold proposals about hormonal treatments and, and surgeries in the absence of really good, hard empirical data. And he also points out in this very important chapter, the negative consequences of putting young people through hormonal treatments and any people through uh, sex reassignment surgery and how little evidence there is that it is successful in any way in alleviating the condition. Yeah. Joseph, your comments on the Hrus chapter. Well, I was I was also very struck by the you know the the strong documentation in there from from the scientific literature and the fact that you know he exposes things very objectively and and does point out you know that the many of the claims that are made about um, the success of transgender interventions are are overblown or simply not there no, no nothing to corroborate them and I think that. Um, in a sense, is a certain segue to to the next chapter from from Ted, which just points out that a lot of these changes, uh, you know, standard changes and, and very radical changes are being made without any serious scientific basis. 
Yeah, that is a problem, clearly. Um, one of the most interesting things about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5th edition is that gender dysphoria is defined as a type of discomfort, psychological discomfort that the patient feels. It is not described as a mental illness. In fact, um, the DSM-5 considers people who have gender dysphoria to be in good, sound mental health. It's a rather remarkable claim. The suffering and discomfort comes from the fact, according to the DSM-5, that the patient is in the wrong body. He, he has the wrong body. He's a man who has a woman's... Who, he is a, a man who is in a man's body, but should be in a woman's body. That is, that's apparently the case, according to the DSM-5. And the discomfort also comes from the refusal of society, family members, and others to recognize that he is correct in his judgment, that he is in the wrong body. So it's quite an extraordinary type of diagnosis. And it's, it's really hard to square, I think, with just general common sense. Yeah. Yeah. Ted, you and I recorded a couple of podcasts. It's Bioethics on Air, episodes 11 and 12. This was a, a couple of years ago on this. But yeah, it, it's highly problematic. Joseph, your comments on uh, a critique of gender dysphoria in DSM-5. Yeah, I think the main point is is simply that this was done without any basis. It, you know, it's quite similar to what was done about removing uh, same-sex attraction, homosexuality, from you know the list of psychological disorders, it was a vote, but right. <laughs> there wasn't yeah. like a scientific you know the scientific basis for this. You know what changed before and after the vote? Well, there was a vote, but th there really wasn't uh, a real, truly scientific process involved here. So it seems very much more political than actually scientific. Joe, if I just follow up on on the uh, this recommendation from DSM five to family members and the like, not to react negatively to, say, a husband and a father who comes out in front of his family and says, I've, I've discovered that I'm a woman. I'm going to start taking hormone therapy. I'm going to become a woman. I want you to all think of me as a woman. We, you know, we have a 24-hour consultation line. We get calls from family members saying, this is absolutely destroying our family. And that's a perfectly natural reaction. DSM-5 is telling those people, those family members, wives, children, husbands, etc., that your reactions are wrong and you are contributing to the problem. That's, that's a remarkable charge. All right, let's move on to our, the, the next chapter, uh, which is titled Carol Voitila, Sex Reassignment Surgery and the Body-Soul Union. And this was written by Jacob Harrison. Ted, what is Harrison's overall aim in this chapter? Well, you know, he's digging into uh, Pope St. John Paul II's uh, philosophy. We were quite blessed to have uh, John Paul as Pope. He was an established philosophical thinker in his own right before entering into the papacy. And so Harrison goes through the various influences on his thought, mostly Germanic, uh, Max Scheler and the phenomenological movement, Immanuel Kant and uh, transcendental idealism, 
and also Aquinas. And he points out that uh, the Pope you know, was influenced by these thinkers, but uh, ultimately set aside some of their, their views about human anthropology. Uh, phenomenology is really descended from Descartes and a very uh, subjective view of nature where everything just appears to be to be phenomena rather than re- real. And Immanuel Kant is in the same category. He, he actually says we can't know the world as it is, but only as it is structured by the mind. So the Pope kind of went through a period where he divested himself of the bad parts of this, these philosophies and kept the good. For example, he, uh, John Paul was very enamored of the idea that uh, we should always treat people as ends and never as means, and also of Kant's uh, duty theory. So th- there's good things in Kant as well. But he returns to Aquinas and uh, the body-soul relationship that Aquinas affirms, which comes ultimately from Aristotle, and is uh, it, there's a substantial union between body and soul. And this really limits uh, the claims of transgenderism on Catholic teaching. It, it really can't make much headway if we take the church's teachings and John Paul II's particular interpretation of, uh, of that tradition seriously. So then he goes on to critique a couple of uh, other contemporary authors who have set aside the Catholic teaching and, and uses John Paul II's approach to critique them. Joseph, your comments on the Harrison chapter. Yeah, so I, I think it's it's very important to to realize the gift that we receive from uh, St. John Paul II. And um, one of the things that's mentioned in the chapter very, very much is Veritati Splendor. And, you know, the, the fact that we can know the truth and the fact that uh, the church really helps us to understand uh, the nature of the human person, including the unity of the body and the soul, and that it's not possible to have a body of one sex and a soul of another, uh, that the two are, are substantially one. And, and that's really the crux of the argument uh, on the other side and, and on the Catholic side. And so, you know, can there really be, and, and, you know, it goes a little further, right? Because God creates the soul directly. So it's, it's basically saying that God made a mistake, that he put me in the wrong body. Um, and so that's a, an enormous claim to make, but but people I think need to realize how radical the claim that is. You know, as a Christian, um, as a Catholic, you really believe that uh, God created the soul, and and God does not make a mistake in those areas. So theologically, I think it's it's a very important chapter for the book uh, for people to realize how radically different uh, the two perspectives are. Yeah, very good. All right. I'd like to, uh, we're going to move to the end of the book. Uh, we're taking things a little bit out of order. I wanted to uh, finish discussing the, the non-NCBC, uh, non-NCBC authors. So the last two chapters of the book address canon law. And the first chapter is called Transsexualism and the Canonical Order by Urbana Cardinal Navarrete, SJ. And the second chapter is called Canon Law and Apotemnophilia, I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly, by Edward Peter. So, Ted, can you first, first, can you please say this, uh, say this word correctly? Uh, and then <laughs> apotemnophilia, and then how is it related to transgenderism? Yeah, it's uh, apotemnophilia. Thank you. It's a, it's a Greek, it's Greek word uh, 
So it's, it's, My, it was I'm not named good a long Greek. time ago before <laughs> English came into existence. So. <laughs> Apotemnophilia. Yeah, it's um, the desire to have a limb or other bodily part amputated. And this, this was covered in previous editions of the DSM-5. It's not in there anymore. Uh, it would conflict with their gender dysphoria therapeutic approach if it were in there. And Peters, who is a very well-known canonist, has his own blog and sound thinker in this this area and other areas, he looks at Canon 209, and which which concerns the duty of Catholics to remain in fidelity to the Church. It's a very it's a very general canon, because if you are you know a literalist, it's, I guess it's better to say a positivist. For those who know that word, it means uh, there's no law unless it's positively written down. Now, you're not going to find much uh, in canon law that there's on the topic of apotemnophilia or gender dysphoria or other such things. So he realizes that and says, here we are turning to the general duty of Catholics to remain in conformity with the thinking of the church. And this is a good and more general point uh, for those who are always looking for a particular statement that says X, Y, and Z. And if it's not there, that means we're free to do as we please. It's really not the case. I mean, there are many deductions that are easily made from what we already know has been laid down. And we were just talking about them in terms of Jacob Harrison's article you know, John Paul II reaffirmed many of these basic teachings, and it's not a big step to go from there, as Harrison does, to the conclusion that cutting off a part of your body should not be done by any Catholic physician or done by any Catholic patient. And you say that word very well, Ted. I'm, I'm jealous of you. <laughs> Joseph, your, your comments. Yeah, I would say that it's it's an important contribution in the sense that um, we do have to be very faithful to the Catholic tradition. And, and the church has always taken a lot of time and considered issues as, as they've arisen, you know, challenges to, to Catholic doctrine or Catholic teaching. But certainly there's always the core, right, that we, uh, we have of, of what we believe. And so when something comes to challenge it, uh, it may need to be addressed specifically, but even even without a specific answer to you know a question like apotemnophilia, we do have you know general church teaching about you know preserving your life and and um, and the good of, of our health and, and of healthy body parts that should not be should not be amputated or you know mutilation um, without without a serious reason. Right. So that's making about, me. You guys are making me look bad with your pronunciation, which I couldn't pronounce. I still can't pronounce that word. It's one of those ones I'll never, ever get. Ted, anything on the the chapter from uh, Cardinal Navarrete on transsexualism in the canonical order? Well, this is a straight reprinting of something that appeared in a Roman journal a couple of decades ago. He was very much ahead of the issue, and he uses the older term transsexualism, as you, as you read the title there. Uh, but he uh, looks at you know, how does the church's teaching, which he also thinks is very clear uh, and unambiguous, even without any specific directives or 
know, canons, h- how does the church handle uh, marriages where one of the couple declares himself or herself a member of the opposite sex? Uh, so for, just give you a couple of interesting details. These are, these are very serious, difficult problems. But he holds that under canon law, some a, a man, for example, who has doubts about whether he's a man and might be a woman, but wants to marry, and the woman's willing to marry him with that knowledge, he says the, the priest has to or should, should give them marriage. Uh, it's kind of surprising, but if he should proceed afterwards to undergo uh, this kind of transition or start living as a member of the opposite sex, then the question of nullifying the marriage is on the table and can take place. So it's a carefully nuanced uh, article. He also goes into holy orders and, you know, People who are giving tendencies of this ahead of time obviously should be excluded from consideration, but looks at the case where someone has been ordained and then says he is going to become a woman. You know, the indelible mark of the priesthood remains, he says, but he can be deprived of his faculties. So it's that sort of an of an article, um, I guess you'd say a more technical one for people who are part of the church hierarchy and, and how these matters should be handled by them. Yeah. Yeah. Joseph, your comments. Yeah. I was particularly struck by the the section on holy orders, you know, and in religious life um, because it, I think it, it does raise some issues, right? Someone says, well, you know, I was born a woman, but now I'm a man. I want to enter the seminary and become a priest. Uh, the church does not accept that a person can change their sex. Um, and that's that's a fundamental problem and a fundamental distinction that you know I think is going to be challenged and is something that uh, the church has to stand up for very clearly. But it's it's important to see you know in canon law how that that kind of you know defense is is important to to maintain and um, how um, how we should you know kind of be viewing these issues uh, from a legal perspective within the Catholic tradition. All right, let's let's move on. Uh, the next chapter, it, it was co-written by Dr. Thomas Nelson, MD, who is not an NCBC ethicist, and also our own Father Tad Paholchik, who is. And this chapter is titled "Responding to Gender Ideology in the Medical Workplace." Ted, what issues do Dr. Nelson and Father Tad tackle in their chapter? Well, they offer practical advice to Catholics in, in this case, uh, it was a secular institution, but sometimes this happens in Catholic institutions as well. Catholic, pre, uh, Catholic physicians and nurses and the like who are being pressured to adopt the language of, transgen- of the transgender movement and use these complicated uh, pronouns and, and, other, and switch. If, if a person says, he is a woman, then you need to use the proper pronoun and, and grant that, etc. So this is a case where the physician, uh, Nelson, had objections to this in conscience and, uh, you know, founded on the Catholic faith. And, uh, you know, he, it, it recounts the difficulties 
and offers advice, uh, uh, practical advice about how to push against this. And ultimately, uh, Nelson was able to maintain his his rights of conscience and also keep his his position at the institution. So it's a successful case study, you might say, of resisting the imposition of the transgender ideology on healthcare practitioners. Well stated. Joseph, your comments on the Nelson and Paholchik chapter. Yeah, it's it's definitely a window onto this uh, sexual orientation and gender identity training that is being proposed in many circumstances. I think it's very important that uh, institutions realize that there is an agenda that's, you know, we're not talking about diversity training in the usual sense. We're talking about really changing the language that people use uh, to facilitate uh, a change that is not acceptable uh, in favor of something that the church does not accept, which is that a person can change their sex. So in a sense, it's it's a little bit the front lines of, of individuals and their consciences uh, having to resist uh, an ideological push to force everybody to uh, to acknowledge something that they don't believe. And so it's very important to for people to realize that this is a problem, that it is coming, and that to be prepared to resist that. Right. And it gives some practical uh, suggestions of what people can do to resist that, which I really appreciated from this chapter. All right. At this point, we're going to do something on bioethics on air that have, that's never been done before, as far as I know. The the interviewer is turning into the interviewee, and I'm not sure I like it too much. But Joseph, you're going to take over host duties uh, right now. Correct. Because we want to talk about the excellent contribution you made to the book, oh, Joe. Boy. Um, and in particular, uh, the chapters that you wrote on Catholic school policies on gender identity, and also your general description of uh, Catholic healthcare policies. So what is your, your main comment on these, these chapters that you wrote, Joe? Well, I, I guess a couple of things, and, and Joseph and Ted, and I think all the ethicists at the NCBC know, I'm, I'm more the practical guy in terms of, okay, we, we talk about a lot of deep things at the NCBC, um, but my question is always, okay, what does this mean for real people? And I can remember having a conversation with Ted probably spring or summer of, of 2020 when this book was coming together, and Ted was saying, we, we kind of need, we need something to kind of put a bow on the book. Um, and I, I suggested, well, you know, I'd been working on a Catholic schools policy thing. What about if we were to take everything, you know, that the NCBC has has written and see if we can uh, put together a, a template policy for Catholic healthcare? And Ted said, I think that sounds like a great idea. Now who's going to write it? And then we spent about a week or two trying to figure out who was going to write it. And finally, Ted said, uh, hey, Joe, why don't you just write it? And I said, well, okay. Um so I ended up doing that. So that's really where that came about. And also, it, it has come about because uh, we have our Catholic Identity and Ethics Review Program. And from what we have found in the, the, the years that we've been doing those reviews is that Catholic healthcare institutions and systems really have no policies or guidelines in place for dealing with gender ideology or, or issues of gender identity or transgenderism. And we've always pointed that out. And uh, hospitals and, and healthcare systems will say, well, do you guys have any 
any language that we can use. And so the, the, the template policy for Catholic healthcare, along with the, ex, the explanatory essay that went along with it, was really meant uh, in a way to respond to that uh, request from Catholic uh, healthcare systems as well. Well, that's great. Yeah. In fact, you're talking about uh, the next chapter that you wrote, right? The template policy for Catholic healthcare and gender identity, a resource for policy guidance. Uh, what are you seeking to accomplish through these chapters? Well, the the template policy, I started writing that and realized very quickly that if when you're writing a policy, because the policy is usually pretty quick and to the point, but realized that there was so much going on here that really needed to, we needed to explain this more. And so I said, well, let's, let's, as we're writing the policy, let's also give some policy guidance. Why is it that we're saying the things we do about you know, what kind of interventions are appropriate or not appropriate? What about issues of using names and pronouns and, and medical records and, and, and a whole host of different issues? So the policy was, you know, it's intended to be a guide for Catholic healthcare institutions to use. And the resource that goes along with it explains the policy elements uh, in a lot more detail. I think the policy itself is maybe 10 or 12 pages and the the uh, the uh, the resource for policy guidance is about twenty five, so that, that's not surprising. But again, the, the purpose of them is is to give Catholic healthcare systems and really other healthcare systems as well too uh, some some guidance and some language to say, okay, how is it that we are going to respond to gender ideology, and how are we going to respond to this push, as as Ted very eloquently said. Uh, from advocates to you know to to try to impose this belief on Catholic healthcare and to force Catholic healthcare to provide these interventions that they want. I'm just going to jump in and, and add something to what Joe is saying there. And Joe, I know you you've told me this that is Catholic institutions that are concerned about declaring themselves Catholic do that on a regular basis have policies that follow Catholic teaching. Uh, you know, and just to affirm their identity, they have a much better chance of succeeding in court cases at law, and uh, they they need they need to get this out there and make these policy statements clear in order to preserve their identity. Yeah, absolutely, and and I thanks for mentioning that because you know I don't want people to think that it was just me or or the NCBC writing these policies in a vacuum. Uh, we, as far on the medical side, we we consulted with medical professionals and also a person who was, uh, uh, you know, a uh, ethicist, a well-known ethicist in a Catholic healthcare system. But Ted, as you said, we also uh, t- to deal with this issue of, of of you know making sure that that the organ making sure that it's known that the organization is Catholic. We worked very closely with our friends at the uh, Catholic Benefits Association to 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 implement good human resources language into the policy template that very clearly states, you know, this organization is a Catholic institution. We are an apostolate of the Catholic Church and very clearly uh, state that and say that we provide care in, uh, you know, completely in line with the teachings of the ethical and religious directives and with the church. And as we move forward, uh, that may be the really only defense that uh, healthcare systems have uh, from being forced to provide these, you know, these uh, so-called affirming interventions. In fact, you know, when 
when Catholic healthcare institutions, when they, you know, when they start to give ground, whether it's on name and pronoun use, whether it's on, uh, you know, uh, referring for hormones and things like that, you open up, uh, you know, you open the floodgates to the advocates. And so what, what I'm saying and what we're saying through these uh, through these policies and through the language we use is that Catholic healthcare and Catholic schools as well need to you know, need to take a stand and and say very clearly we are Catholic and we are not you know buying into this ideology at all and that's part of their defense um, against it moving forward. Great, <clears throat> looks like you're the host again, Joe. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to come back and, and be the host. So, Joseph and Ted, what uh, final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? Joseph, go first, if you would. I think that the issue of transgenderism is quite inflamed, you know, and I think there are many people speak about it in kind of very passionate and sometimes uninformed ways. And so it's it's so important that we look at this as objectively and calmly and, and charitably as possible. But it's also very important that, you know, we maintain the truth, that uh, cer- certain things are kind of in the realm of common sense, are in the realm of, you know, sound policy, and many people will be harmed if if there isn't a uh, very sound view of this. So I think it's it's very charitable to think in terms of um, you know what people can be very seriously harmed, and and how our society can be very seriously harmed if if we go down the wrong path, and so I think it's a valuable contribution from the NCBC to help um, look at these issues and, and for institutions that are at risk of being attacked, of of being uh, manipulated, to think very responsibly about these issues, and to to put into place policies and whatnot that will defend them and and defend the truth. Ted, what final words of wisdom do you have for us today? Well, these are not really wise words. They're commercial words because it's available for sale. And uh, it's go to our website and and get it before it's banned by the powers that be. And it is available now. Uh, I think it is an important book for defending Catholic culture against this movement, as Joseph was saying. And it's, we tried to keep it short to the point and you know, have lots of valuable information in it that can be used for the coming struggle. So I invite uh, listeners to come to our website at ncbcenter.org and uh, go to the store and purchase a copy. Yep. Once again, the name of the book is Transgender Issues in Catholic Healthcare. It's available, as Ted said, in our online store, ncbcenter.org. Click on Shop. Joseph Meany and Ted Furton, other than the fact that I can't pronounce long vocabulary words, it was a <laughs> it was a pleasure having you on the podcast today. And thank you for joining me on Bioethics on Air. Great to be here. Yeah, God bless you, Joe. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics On Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. 
For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.